the Indian sepoys on the Western Front during the First World War, often praised, sometimes derided. Were they lions in the trenches or did they fail the big test against the Germans? Were they terrified by artillery? Did a huge number deliberately wound themselves and could they operate without command and control from their British officers? These are all thorny questions and one which we will be examining closely today. On today's podcast, I'm joined by friend of the show, David Snape. He's written a book called A Tiger Loose on an Ice Flow, all about the Ferrozpore Brigade on the Western Front, 1914-15. to If you want to buy a discounted copy of his book, then please see the link in the description. Just order it from the Helion Books website and put in the discount code SNAPE, S-N-A-P-E, 5, the numeral 5, at checkout. By the way, before we get stuck into the interview, I do just want to ask you to sign up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com newsletter. When you do so, you'll get a free ebook all about the Battle of Isandwana. If you really want to get involved with the community, you can also join the Patreon. That's patreon.com redcoathistory. That costs $5 a month, and what it means is you get all my videos and podcasts early. I release them a couple of weeks generally before they get released to the general public, and of course there'll be no adverts. So if that sounds good, just visit patreon.com slash redcoathistory. Okay, without further ado, let's crack on. What, what was your interest in the Indian troops on the Western Front 1914-15? What, what tickled your fancy and made you want to research these guys? Well, um, there's two, two aspects to that. One is that my great-uncle, after whom my father and then myself was named, died at the Siege of Kut. And he was a, a regular. And, and for was, people who don't know, that was sort of Iraq 1917, was it? Or have I made a mistake there? Oh, you're right. Mesopotamia. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, he he was a regular and he was part of the rifle brigade. But somehow or other, he was seconded to the Indian corps that went to Kut. And he was apparently on the radio side, which is interesting. And uh, he actually was mentioned in dispatches. Uh, for his work there. Um, so that was a family link. And then when I uh, retired, I decided I would do um, a backup to my general knowledge about military history by doing um, an MA at Wolverhampton. And one of the MAs I did too, in fact, one of them was to compare uh, the Indian on the Western Front and the Indians in Mesopotamia. Um, because it was quite a different sort of battlefield, quite a different structure. And it was that that sort of got me interested. Right. And I suppose in the end, uh, I took the the work I've done on the Western Front and, and then really researched it quite extensively. Well, David, I think that that's an interesting segue. I'm kind of going off script a little bit here, but well, I'm just interested to know... Does this mean there might be a, a, a follow-up book from you? I know we've not even got into the first one yet, but a, a potential follow-up looking at the Indian units in Mesopotamia or or maybe there, not? There could be. Uh, one of the reasons why the Western Front is much easier is because you can get hold of the regimental diaries. 
and you can get them on disc electronically. So oh, you brilliant. don't you don't have to go down to the British Museum or the British Library or anywhere like that. You can just yeah. sit there and read them. In the same way, you can also get uh, the official histories, the British official histories on disc. Uh, it's many volumes in hardback. And so you can easily link the diaries with the histories. Um, and there are one or two other uh, documents as well, such as um, Wilcox's memoirs. They're also digital. So that from the point of view of researching, uh, compared with what it was like 20 odd years ago when I first started doing some research, you don't have to go anywhere until you've done a lot of research. Uh, the Mesopotamian ones, much, much harder, particularly the ones that would involve my great uncle because they were all destroyed when they were taken prisoner. Wow. So uh, th there are some records, for example, there were official dispatches in the, the London Gazette, which is how I know it was mentioned in dispatches. Yep. And interestingly enough, his, um, his rank is there as corporal, whereas on his official army records, it's private. So whether this was a field promotion which never actually got yeah. registered officially, I don't know. I'm interested for a bit of background before we dive in too much to the guys on the Western Front. Can you just give me a, a brief overview of the state of the Indian Army at the beginning okay. of the First World War? You know, what was its makeup, its organisation, its strengths and weaknesses, that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, it was the, the largest group of Empire troops outside Britain. Um, there are probably just under 200,000 Indian troops. Uh, and there was also an intended reserve of about 40,000. We don't pay much attention to the reserve uh, because they were definitely of dubious quality. They did... Uh, training about every two years and what they were training for was nothing like um, they would find on the Western Front and that's true about the whole of the Indian Army. Presumably uh, they were focused on dealing with sort of uh, tribesmen on the Northwest Frontier yes. were they? Yeah and, and civil discipline if you like supporting the civil authorities if there were outbreaks um, which inevitably they were uh, and they were, uh, you know, civil discipline, things like that, helping the authorities to keep order. Um, and, and it was at a time when uh, India was sort of tentatively looking towards independence. So there were sort of unrest, outbreaks of unrest. That you, We talk about two sorts of army in uh, India. There's the Indian army which is the one made up of, of locals, if you like, and the army in India. And the army in India were British regiments, which were stationed there. There were about uh, 76,000 British troops serving in India at that time. The structure was that for each brigade, there will be three Indian battalions, or regiments, it's almost interchangeable. In fact, when I was writing, I found it difficult 
to decide whether I was going to call them a regiment or a battalion. But uh, technically, I suppose they're battalions. Yeah. Uh, so three Indian battalions and one British battalion. And that was consistent throughout uh, the army in India. In addition, was this very strange position called follower. They had sp specific Indian names, uh, but they did all the jobs that soldiers wouldn't want to do. Uh, and some of the jobs you would have thought they ought to do. For example, they did the washing. Um, they looked after horses and things like that. All the menial tasks. There were When they came to France, there were two distinct groups. Um, one were, were in what we would possibly term Batmen for officers. Yeah. Uh, but and that would be the that would be the case uh, in Indian battalions. And the others were employed by the government um, for each battalion to do these menial tasks. Um, there was about 45,000 of them. And they were a, a, an interesting group. We all know the Kipling poem, Gunga Din. Mm, about the water carrier. The water carrier. That's just the sort of jobs that these people did. If you go to France, you will see quite a few graves to them in the you know, British graves, grave cemeteries. Uh, so they had a very dangerous life. Uh, from the point of view of logistics, they had to be fed, they had to be transported, but they didn't fight. So they, technically they contributed nothing to a victory or a battle. Yeah. They just did these menial tasks. Um, the way the army had been structured was due to Kitchener, who reformed the Indian army in 1895 when he was C&C in, in India. And as we've said, he dictated it would be a force recruited locally and permanently based in India together with its expatriate officers. Now, the expatriate officers were actually, as it sort of implies, British officers. Uh, normally, they were Sandhurst graduates. And in fact, it was considered to be uh, quite prestigious to get a, a job in the Indian Army originally. But it was also considered to be a backwater. And you might ask yourselves, why did people do it if it got this sort of mixed? Well, to be... Um, a British Army officer was an expensive business. You had to pay for just about everything. Yeah, mess bills alone were probably more than your salary, right? Oh, absolutely right. And uh, but in India, it was cheaper, so you could get sort of middle class British officers graduating from Sandhurst looking for appointments in India because that's what they could actually afford. And uh, quite a few of the very famous names uh, in the British Army got there. Um, there was this spectre amongst the uh, 
British of the Indian Rebellion. 1857. 1857. And it sort of never went away for, I would say, 60 years. And it was the unreliability of certain groups of Indians. And that resulted in the development of a thing called the martial race theory. The martial race theory was basically that there are only certain races in India, if I can use that term, ethnic groups, who had a fighting quality. And if you actually look at the ones that they thought had fighting qualities, you could put them into two main groups. One, the ones that did not rebel during 1857. Like the Gurkhas? Like the Gurkhas. And I was going to say, and the second group, uh, groups which had proved very, very good at fighting against us in formal battle. So also like the Gurkhas. <laughs> and the Sikhs. Yeah. Um, and this meant that if you were looking for uh, recruits, you didn't look at some of the races that had been really rebellious. Yeah, like the Avad, uh, the, the, the Avad sepoys, those guys. Yes, ex exactly. So that, first of all, that's clearly limited your recruiting. Yeah. The other uh, thing about it was that uh, they wanted to build the concept of a family. Now, we know about the PALS regiments in, in Britain where you recruited from a locality. Um, like, for example, the Sheffield PALS. They were, they were nearly all living in Sheffield or the regions of Sheffield, and they all joined um, a, a group of the York and Lancaster Regiment, a battalion in them. Now, in uh, the Indian Army, uh, there were two sorts of battalion. Oh, well, no, within within the battalion, there were two sorts of company. There was a company which all the, all the people in it were of the same ethnic group. So you might have a Sikh battalion, and then all the four companies, well, it was eight companies originally, were Sikhs. And that, that starts to build a family, uh, a joint view of, of, of life, a joint view of battle and so on. Or you could have uh, a company which was a mixed company, which meant, uh, which meant that within your battalion, you could have a group of Muslims, you could have a group of Hindus and so on. They were all linked together in their own little companies. And again, this made as a weakness recruiting difficult because if if one company was badly hit by um, deaths and wounds, you had to find people of the same ethnic group. And you can see that would cause a problem. Yeah. Particularly as your recruits were coming from India. They weren't coming from, like, like in, in Britain, they weren't just coming 22 miles across the channel. Um, also, 
as part of that of that the weakness itself um, in logistics, they often had different diets. Uh, if you take bread, for example, there were three types of bread um, or bread products that were, were eaten by Indian soldiers. And depending on your ethnic group, it depended on which type of bread you were accustomed, uh, accustomed to eat. Now, clearly, that's quite important. Fe feeding your troops and making sure they're happy with their diet, if you can, is a good way to build morale. And from the point of view of uh, providing these different groups, it made life more difficult. I imagine it was a logistical nightmare. Within yeah, the same um, unit, you've got probably Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs, all yeah, with different dietary re requirements. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and they would be in, those Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs would be in different companies as well. Uh, so if you look at, at that, when we come to look at officers, that also caused another problem. Because clearly, if you had a company of Muslims, the, the officer, the Indian officers, had to be a Muslim. And so, again, keeping your numbers up yeah. is very difficult, given the distance between you or them and India. So... I think we're we're looking at um, the weaknesses and the strengths, really, because the keeping a company of similar thinking people from similar parts of the country was a real strength. It was the family, the concept of the family, uh, perhaps even more so than than British battalions. Um, yeah. And to demonstrate that, if you wanted to, if you were a British officer looking for a post in India, you first of all had to learn your trade in a British regiment or a British battalion in England. And you did 12 months service. And then you sent to you were sent to your Indian regiment. And one of the qualifications was that you were able to speak to your men in their own language. So your first year or so, you had to learn whatever the language was of your your company, your battalion. Urdu was the lingua franca. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't all speak Urdu, all the, the Indians. So you had to learn it. And in fact, you weren't allowed to go on, on leave until you were competent in it. As a that would motivate you to, to try yeah. hard in class. I think it certainly would. The other thing I, I suppose we've got to look at is... Uh, the Indian officers. Each battalion and each company had Indian officers, officers of Indian ethnicity. Uh, again, they had to be from the right ethnic group for a particular company. They were really, really skilled, these people. Uh, but as you know, there, there are some reservations about them, and we might come to those in a minute. I'm sure we will. Yeah, they acted as the sort of advisors to the to the British, and sort of solved issues within the company. Sometimes officers didn't know there'd been one, but the the senior 
Indian officer would have sorted it quietly. I suppose a bit like a company sergeant major might might operate in a an Indian an English regiment. And um, the the thing that uh, really struck me was I was reading some official history and the account was that you could be the most junior British lieutenant in an Indian battalion, but you were still superior in inverted commas to the most senior Indian officer, um, which was about the rank of a major. And they would have to obey your orders. But it sort of said, woe betide the lieutenant that didn't live up to the expectations of a British officer in the eyes of the Indian officers. The Indian officers, viceroy commissioned officers, um, or native officers, and each regiment had uh, a Rizaldar major, that's a cavalry senior rank, or a Subadar major, which is the infantry rank. And they worked the way down with different names for different ranks. Um, uh, an interesting thing is that uh, it seems to me, having looked at the, the records, that uh, really quite brave acts by Indians and Indian officers were not judged in the same way that really brave acts of British officers were. And you could find plenty of incidents of um, a British officer accompanied by an Indian officer doing exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. And one will get the VC and the other one, the Indian, will get the Indian Order of Merit, which was much lower in status. Yeah. So there was always this, you know, yeah, okay, they're, they're sort of offices, but they're not as good as we are. Yeah. Well, I, I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna yeah. come back to uh, awards yeah. in a little bit. So maybe we should hold that thought there. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but but David, I mean, moving on a little bit, I think uh, we've got this big army in India. You know, a lot of Indian regiments with a lot of British yeah. battalions amongst yeah. them. When and why was the decision made to send them to Europe? Because presumably there was a bit of pushback against that. Like, how was that decision made and what was the deciding factor? When Britain declared war on Germany on the 4th of August 1914, um, some people thought that that would cause an uproar in India because said uh, the been for some like years. a rebellion you mean yes yes because there was some some unrest for a period of time before that when india were looking for independence so remember that became part of the empire under queen victoria empress of india and so on um and there were lots of other royal groups within india themselves and princes and so on uh and these princely states ran very much in a similar way to the way they'd run before they were part of the empire. And technically, I'm not sure whether they're actually part of the empire because they were ruled by somebody else, but they were very closely linked, whatever. Um, and instead of there being an uproar, there was a mass support. And it was a mass support for the king emperor. So it actually worked in the favour of, of Britain. Uh, and the Viceroy, uh, Lord Harding, who was an interesting character, but I'll not go into that. He was <laughs> somewhat indecisive 
um, he he almost immediately pledged support for for Britain, and by offering the Indian Army, um, and also the rulers, these princes I've talked about, competed with one another to support it. Uh, not so long before 1914, it was only 1913, that the the Viceroy's Council, which I suppose is the equivalent to the government in India, uh, really sort of started to think, well, there might be a war in Europe. And given the fact we've got so many troops here, uh, and 25% of them are British regiments anyway, there is likely to be a need uh, for them to go to to Europe to fight. Um, the political organisations who might have been against it thought mm, this is a good opportunity for us to show our support to Britain and that might eventually uh, enable us to gain some sort of independence. Um, and Harding then pledged support. Uh, they offered a cavalry and infantry corps, each with two divisions. Uh, and it was named initially uh, the Indian uh, I beg your pardon, Expeditionary Force A. It soon became known as the Indian Corps uh, by the time it arrived in Europe. Um, its head was going to be a chap called Sir James Wilcox. Kitchener had mixed feelings about Wilcox. Wilcox had got all this experience, but uh, Kitchener didn't think he was really uh, ruthless enough, I suppose that's, that's the thing, which, which did uh, interfere with their relationships. Uh, and in fact, that when Kitchener had Hager CNC. It was the beginning of a very, very rough relationship between Hague and Wilcox. They didn't get on. And as time passed, that relationship really deteriorated. But we'll come to that later. Yeah. Uh, there were the two Indian uh, infantry divisions was the Meerut and the Lahore division. Lahore division is where the Ferozso Brigade is. And they were part of uh, the two two of the divisions that went. They were made up of four brigades, as I've said. Each brigade made up of three Indian Army regiments and one British regiment. Um, the Ferrosso Brigade, which is was the theme in the book, it had uh, the Connaught Rangers was its British regiment, Irish regiment. It had been in India for some years um, and had seen experience in the Boer War, which is quite quite interesting and important to how they behaved in, in battle when they were back in France. The 9th Bhopal Infantry, that was a mixed-class regiment. That's where you have people of different religions in the different companies. The 57th Wild Frontier Regiment, which its name 
gives it away. It was used to working on the Khyber Pass and places like that. Yeah. Would um, that mainly have been like Pashto speakers from that area or would they have been yeah. recruited elsewhere? Yeah, it, it, it would be. Um, they were all based around Arozapur. That's That was the headquarters, which is how it got its name as a division. And the fourth one was the Duke of Connaught's own Baluchis. Um, they all, all four of them had distinguished histories, as you yeah. can we would expect that from the Connaught Rangers, but the other three uh, and, and graduated from uh, East India Company regiments and so on, and we and were comprised of people who've been loyal, uh, or groups who had been loyal during the uh, rebellion. Um, and, and what we must remember is that, like the BEF, uh, initially, these Indian brigades were all regulars and all volunteers. Yeah. And that was the case throughout uh, the First World War for the Indian contribution. They were all regulars. No, they were all volunteers. Yeah. Well, so, David, we've we've got these two infantry divisions plus cavalry. Uh, we won't get too... I don't think we need to get too bogged down into their journey uh, across no. to France. But can you can you tell us when did they finally get to France and reach the Western Front, and and yeah. what were their what were their first experiences? For most of the journey, nobody knew where they were going. They were just getting on board a ship and sailing somewhere in the direction of Europe. Yeah, uh, and their first real stop was in Egypt, and they there was a big rumor that. Uh, amongst the men at least that they were actually going to guard the Suez Canal and the troops that were stationed in Egypt for that purpose would be sent to Europe so it's substitution yeah. and they did spend a week or so a bit more than a week in that area and then all of a sudden they were put back on boats and sent off to France so whether that was the original plan, nobody knows, but it was only when they actually were leaving Egypt that people began to know. And when I say people, I mean some of the senior superior officers too. Right, so everyone was in the dark, from the lowest yeah. to the highest. Yeah, very much so. Anyway, they landed on the 26th of uh, September at Marseille. Uh, and during the journey on the ship, Indian... Uh, but divisions were made up of eight companies. British regiments were made up of four. So they decided, in their wisdom, on the journey, they would reorganise themselves into four rather than eight. And in fact, if you read some of the diaries, they still talk about the eighth company or the seventh company. It's, it's not come out of their brains that yeah. not, they only have four. Now, so would they have changed company strength from, say, a 100-member company to, like, 200 per company? Is yeah, that kind of yeah. the figures we're talking? That's right. Now, if I, I tried to explain this feeling of being a part of a family. Well, suddenly your family has grown. And you might not know half of them, whereas the other half, yeah, you know very well because you've trained with them, you've been with them. And it's the same with the officers. So that was a bit of a challenge. And when they got off at Marseille, there was an even more uh, bit of disruption 
they were made to change rifles yes because they were a generation behind weren't they they were and that's that's to do with the rebellion there's always this idea let's keep the indian soldier a little bit behind the british soldier yeah which is why for example they didn't really have any artillery as part of the indian army they were all regular uh, royal artillery officers running it was never really an indian province and uh, in fact according to wilcox he believed that uh, changing the rifles at that stage actually impaired their efficiency as soldiers because they were so used to 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 using the ones they used and then so did they have like lee metfords or something and then they changed like the smle or something like that it was they changed to the smle smle but the one they had was the modern one rather than the one before right okay and uh in fact some of them they were thrust into battle so quickly that they hardly had any time to practice and and as, as you will know when you get your rifle, you need to look at the sights and so on, and each one has its yeah. different, its little quirks. Mm, you need to zero on. it at the range, yeah, get it all, all sorted sort of for your eyes, and yeah. yeah. And some of them didn't have opportunity to do that. Some did, but some didn't. Yeah. Um, and it, it 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 probably did uh, initially uh, change their effectiveness, but the ability to use your rifle accurately increased your pay. So they had an incentive to actually learn as quickly as they could. Yeah. Um, so there we've got this new reorganisation, more or less, as they arrive. Um, they arrived wearing their tropical uniforms. Now, that could mean one or two things. Well, three things. One, total inefficiency. Two, they really didn't have many sort of proper hard surge khaki uniforms in India because when would they need them but they might do on the the uh, on the Khyber and places like that where the weather could be very cold or they were intended to go to Egypt so that you didn't need to give them right them. yeah last minute change last minute change um it's not clear I, I couldn't find any real factual information that said that this was this is the case um however i said that one of the uh, divisions did remain in india uh, sorry in egypt um and came back later so it was right. obviously some mixed thinking going on um of course i mentioned the followers they were in a worse state because they didn't have any sort of uniform they just had what they could wear really um and when they got to france september heading towards autumn winter they were really cold and, and they needed a lot of extra clothing um there's the another issue is the fact that the british operated a one-size-fits-all so if you were issued with warm clothing it would be one size it didn't matter what size you were, one size. And in fact, uh, there's a story about Gurkha officers having to go out and buy safety pins because the long johns that the Gurkhas were issued were far too big. So they all had to use these safety pins to pin them together so they sort of fitted in some sort of way. But yeah, so it uh, you can see it wasn't uh, 
it wasn't that well organized in that sort of respects. Uh, they arrived on the 26th. On the 29th, they marched through Marseille to board trains. And they went, their first stopping off point really well, was uh, Sir Cot, which is uh, close to uh, Orléans. And that's where they set up a camp and they started to learn assault practice because they weren't used to really charging emplacements. They were used to sort of the enemy popping out, having a shot and popping back. Um, and you sort of won battles in the kind of but with your presence rather and blowing up places uh, rather than uh, proper battles. So they had to train them out, you know, how to do. They're also trained in basic things like doing, doing tensure, trenches, which uh, they no real experience of, but they were vital. Yeah. Um, and that lasted, it took them three weeks to actually get up to command structure. And they were sent then, after those three weeks, um, to Messine. It took them longer than they thought uh, because they need, they realised they needed extra training. And also, eventually, they managed to load them up on, on buses. You've seen the famous pictures of London buses carrying troops to the front. Well, they were used in that sort of way. Uh, when they got there, they were just in time. The BEF had uh, fought major battles, uh, Mons, Lucato. And of course, remember, this is a very small, relatively group of professional soldiers. There were reserves, but they hadn't really been involved. And... Uh, Something like 16,000 of the BEF were either killed and wounded, and uh, two and a half thousand were taken prisoner. That was quite a percentage of the BEF. Huge. So, the arrival of the Indians at that moment say, saved them, I think. Uh, and of course, as you know, there was the uh, drive to the Channel ports which the Germans wanted to do, that would have meant that they would have thrust the BEF out of France. A, a bit like a, an early Dunkirk it would have been if it had happened. And the fact that the Indians were there um, sort of prevented that. But they just came in the nick of time. So, David, did that mean then they got they got stuck straight in, did they? Like, literally, you know, they, had their, yeah, they had their three weeks of training and then straight into the front line. Yeah. Yeah, very, very quickly. Um, and, of course, it was a completely different environment to anything they'd, they'd known. Um, and their reactions were, were quite interesting. Uh, yeah, what have, you, what have you found out? What have you, what have you read about their reactions? Well, the, you can find out there's, there's very little written by the Indians themselves. Most of them were illiterate peasants. In right. fact, part of the recruiting bit um, looked for ignorant peasants. I use ignorant in an advised way. Uh, you know, not not that they're not clever; they're unedu yeah. uneducated. Uh, and part of that recruiting was that if they were too clever, in inverted commas, they might be thinkers, and thinkers lead to trouble. 
because they start yeah. questioning why we're doing this, why we're doing that. If you get an uneducated peasant, they do as they're told and they don't think about it. So actually getting stuff from them firsthand, um, there's not a lot about. What there is are huge collections of letters that they wrote home or somebody in the battalion wrote, because most of them couldn't write, um, and letters written back to them. And the fact that they exist is because they were all censored. British Army didn't censor its letters until much later. The Indian Army censored its letters almost immediately. Again, it's a question about the rebellion. Do we need to look at what these people are saying and what the people at home are saying? Whereas they didn't think that was necessary in the British Army until much later when the going got tough and casualty rates were up. Um, and you can find in that what they their impressions. You know, there's I remember reading one um, where the, the Indian is writing by home and he's come across French women for the first time. And he more or less says, oh, no, no, it's okay, it's clean. And they more or less say, oh, they, they flirt with you, they look at you and they smile at you, which if you think about the, the traditional Indian woman's behaviour, it was not like that at all. Yeah. Particularly Muslim women who kept themselves uh, covered in public and, and if they went out in public. So there's things like that. Um, and there's things like um, you do get letters from home saying, what are you doing there? We need you here. You know, right. crops failed or something like that. Uh, but you also get letters from soldiers. One in particular, I remember, he'd been in the Indian Army for about 40 years. And you can 40, 4-0. Four, 4-0. Zero. Four, zero. And you can imagine that um, he's quite... They, they probably think he ought to be back home now. Because when you signed up, one of the reasons you signed up for the Indian Army was that not only did you get a pay, it wasn't very much. It was nothing like uh, a British soldier got. In fact, that became a bone of contention and uh, the pay of the Indians had to be increased a bit during the war. But you also got sort of a bit of land or something like that when you returned and this chap, so this chap's got to look forward to a pension. He's, uh, he's the equivalent of a major, which is the highest rank he could achieve. And some sort of bonus when he gets home. And he's saying, more or less, I'd rather give all that up if I could stay with my regiment. Wow. So you've got, there's a mixture of stuff, as you would expect. They all went through censorship. Um... And I suspect, and I think it's probably true, that any that were really subversive never got received or posted. Yeah. Um, you can write, you can read these accounts in a chap called David Omin's Voices of the First World, Indian Voices of the First World War. It's quite, quite an interesting read. Yeah. It will, it will take you through all, it's based by year, so you've got the letters that were written right at the beginning in 1914 by people who just arrived to the letters in 1918 who uh, had perhaps just arrived and and it was quite a shock, as it was quite a shock to them in the first place. But it's 
dipping into that is well worth it to see what the Indians think. And you can see all sorts of opinions. Um, so they were thrown straight in, but in spite of being fighting units originally, instead of sending most of them into the trenches, quite a few were, they were split up. They didn't they weren't in battalions. They were in they weren't in divisions, they were in battalions. So they would send one battalion to do this and another battalion to mm. do that. So sort of fed into the line in bits and pieces rather than exactly. as a formation. Yeah, exactly. That's that's always a recipe for disaster and uh, broken yeah. morale, isn't it? But, well, it is. And and some of the jobs were sort of repairing roads, clearing spaces, you know. Um, these jobs needed doing. Uh, and I suppose, again, it's can we trust these people who are so inexperienced? as a mass but but uh, and they were they were attached to different bits i mean uh part of the perazor brigade were attached to the to allenby's cavalry and apparently they did very well and when he wrote a letter back to their commanding officer edgerton uh he said uh, they've done really well i'm sending them back to you oh oh what's left of them which gives you an idea that you know the, the uh, casualties were high yeah. The real stars were their sappers and miners. And these were sort of almost self-trained technical chaps. And because of the nature of fighting um, in the Khyber and so on, they were used to extemporizing stuff. For example, uh, they were able to make their own hand grenade. They used to make them out of jam tins, apparently. And there was a fuse on them, and um, they were effective. And they were making, they found a factory close to the front where they could make them, and they were making something like 4,000 a day. And oh, wow. as they didn't have them, this was really quite a, when you think about strength, trench warfare, where you're in one trench, they're in another trench, how do you get at them when you've not got much artillery? You throw grenades. Um, and these were homemade. But they worked really well. Uh, unfortunately, the command couldn't distinguish the fact that these were really skilled people and ought to be preserved rather than squandered. And the casualty rate was, was quite high. They were small companies. And in the end, uh, Field Marshal French had to send out a, an order to remind um, the Indian officers british officers and the british officers of other companies not to squander the lives of these men because they were almost irreplaceable wow so it went all the way up to the commander-in-chief isn't that oh, yeah, amazing? yeah 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 it was uh because they they were so good at, at doing what they did at yeah. improvising and so on um and so by the end of october uh the Bhopals, we've talked about, they lost five of their British officers killed or wounded, five Indian officers, 262 men killed and wounded. Their composition when they started was something like 900 men, uh, 17 British and 18 uh, Indian PCO officers. So that within a month, 
that's really quite significant casualties. Although there are quite a few left, and in fact, as time went on, casualties were such that they reduced the standard number of British officers and, and Indian officers attached to a, a battalion, they were really hard to replace. I'm sure. I mean, just finding the people who can speak the language in the first place must be a logistical nightmare. Yeah, it was. And and what I forgot to mention is when uh, the Indian Army was mobilised, there were quite a few British officers serving with the Indian Army who were actually in Britain on leave or doing training. And the government's reaction to that was to stop them going back. Get them over to France. Get them over with, to with, with whichever unit we, who needs yeah, them. Abs absolutely. You see, because yeah. given the skills that they had, the particular skills about, you mentioned language and so on, that was quite a loss as well. Yeah. Um, so they were in there beginning to suffer casualties. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, uh, so, sorry if I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, David, but uh, I'm, 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 I'm keen to, to move on to a story that I think maybe will tell us a lot about these Indian troops, which is the first Victoria Cross that these guys won. It wasn't yeah. long after their arrival that, that uh, I'm going to check the name here, Sepoy Kuadad Khan, I think is how That's you say right. it, who That's won right. the Victoria Cross. What can you tell us about, about his well, award? This was October 1914. So as you say, they didn't really start fighting until September. So it's very, very early on. And also, as I mentioned before, there was a tendency to give Indian troops the Indian Order of Merit or something similar to British um, awards. Didn't apply to British officers in the Indian Army, of course, but yeah. it did apply to Indian officers. Well, Sepoy or Private Kuda Khan, um, I think, demonstrated quite a lot of courage, which should, have, should be and was recognised whatever his unit. Uh, 31st of October, he was part of the Baluchis, uh, and they were fighting in an attempt to hold back a German attack at Holbeck. And, and these are all in the same area of uh, Ypres, places like that. In fact, one of the things you do look and, and discover when you look at these diaries is they're fighting in a very, very small space. This is, you know, the, all these different names, they're all within 50 miles of one another or so. Yeah. So the, the Germans are attacking, the Baluchis are trying to hold them off, and they were suffering heavy casualties. Uh, could our Khan was a machine gunner, uh, which is probably to, to flatter with the weapon he had, uh, because they were old and obsolete. They, they were the... The, the oh, Indian. like an old Maxim gun or something. Yeah, or... exactly. So, and uh, in fact, one of the things that the um, Sappers and Miners has done was design a new tripod for them because the ones they brought with them were not suitable for the sort of warfare they were fighting. Yeah. So he's, he's fighting with his group. There were two machine gun units with him. One is completely silenced or everybody killed. Uh Kudar Khan gets wounded, but he continues to fire. His machine gun unit is then overwhelmed and everybody's shot or bayoneted. Because he was wounded, there must have been blood and stuff around about him. They thought he was dead. 
and they left him. And the gun was was disabled as well through the attacks and could have canalised very quietly. He looked like doggo, I think the Australians would call it. Um, and when nightfall came, he crept back to join the rest of his battalion that hadn't been engaged in this particular fight. He was badly wounded. Uh, and thanks to that act of bravery and, and the other Balukis that uh, were there, they delayed the German advance long enough for British and Indian reinforcements to come back and stop the advance. Um, he was taken to England, which is what happened to very severely wounded, uh, in these early stages, severely wounded Indian soldiers, to the uh, Kitchener Hospital at Brighton, where he recovered. He was the first to actually to be awarded it. He wasn't the first to be presented with it because right. he was too ill to be presented. The one to be presented with it first was Darwin Singh who was the, about in the Garwell Rifles, another uh, division. And he was presented with his uh, VC for acts almost a month later, 22nd, 23rd November. Um, and he received it on the 13th of December. Yeah. And that was uh, more or less in the field. That was in France. He was decorated. Well, do uh, you know, did did these chaps, uh, well, especially Kuwadag Khan, did, did he survive and carry on fighting or was that the end of his he, war? He survived. Um, he, didn't, he didn't actually die until 1971. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, so Amazing. Amazing. Medicine was quite remarkable, I think, given given what he had. But yes, yeah. I mean, he, uh, I'm not sure whether he actually returned. Uh, and we'll come, I, I expect, later to the business about what they expected when they'd been wounded. Yeah. Um, but um, he, he did survive. Um, yeah. And in fact, there are others you can find. There's a, one particular chap who the papers said he got the VC which if you read the records of his battalion, they're quite surprised because they didn't, they haven't recommended him for it. Right. He got the Indian Order of Merit. Right. Uh, he too was in the uh, Kitchener Hospital. Yeah. And I, I think these are two, two examples of Indians who have demonstrated, remember this is a private, it's not one of the Indian uh, Vaishwa's offices. Yeah. It demonstrates they continue to fight without other officers or other superiors being there. Yeah, because this, was, this one... was one of the fears, wasn't it, yeah. David, that the Indians yeah. wouldn't be able to operate, yeah. you know, if their British officers yeah. got killed or whatever. But yeah. presumably stories like his and, and others yeah. prove that actually these guys were, yeah. were pretty switched on. Yes, I, I think so. It, it It's interesting that Wilcox, who really loved his, his Indian soldiers, really did. It was one of the, the issues between him and Kitchener later on. Um, he begged in his memoirs not to commission Indian soldiers in the British Army. Keep them as viceroy inferior to a British officer, because they're not up to it. Mm. And this is a man who'd spent many, many years fighting alongside them, but he's still saying that. 
Um, and therefore, it was a problem. However, inevitably, with casualty rates as they were, and the fact that um, the British officers of India regiments and British regiments as well were expected to be at the front, leading the men, uh, because that's all part of the mystique of being a British officer to an Indian soldier. Look, they're so brave. Yeah, uh, It meant that the casualty rates amongst them was very high. And there's a, a, a really good example from our um, little group, the 57th uh, Wild Rifles. They were fighting at the Battle of Messine. And there were two companies involved. There were two companies, number four company. Uh, under British officers, Captain Gordon, number two, uh, Major Barwell, number four. And there was also another uh, officer, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Molony. They, two, the captain and the major were killed, and the lieutenant was wounded. This meant there was no British officer for these companies. However, the VCO officers involved took over command, fought a really good fighting withdrawal, and the organised an advance, a counterattack. That's without any British officer being there. So what that demonstrates to me is that if when the chips are down and when necessity calls upon it, they can do it. They were reliable, but they've never been taught to take command. You know, they yeah. were, there was almost like it, uh, sergeant majors or senior sergeants in British companies. Yeah. But well, we, I, we would expect I, I, them to do huh? I mean, I suspect, David, uh, you, you may tell me I'm wrong, that this is another hangover from the mutiny, which is they say one of the main reasons the British were able to win the mutiny is because the Indian, even their senior uh, you know, officers, in inverted commas, had no experience of leading units smaller than you know, a company. So yeah. they, they, yeah. they had no command and control experience for yeah. major battles. And, and so maybe there was a sense amongst the British yeah. that let's not let these guys get too much experience of leading no. men because yeah. we don't want them leading them against us. Yeah, uh, absolutely right. I mean, the, whenever you, you look at this sort of period in the Indian Army history, those carryovers from, from the mutiny are there. No. Let's not give them too much power, either in arms and munitions or authority, because they might turn to use it against us. Yeah. Well, um, well we've, we've, we've spoken there, uh, David, about the strengths of the Indian units, and that actually they could operate without British officers when required, and they could hold their own. But there were some downsides, wasn't there? I believe there were some issues around morale, uh, you know, self-inflicted wounds, things yeah. like this. Yeah, m morale was an issue. I mean, I said that their males were censored. The British didn't start to censor until two years after, afterwards, when there was some dissent coming because we started to look at conscription. So there was two particular features about being an Indian soldier. One was Izat, and the other was Rizat. Izat was your duty to be a good soldier and to fight and so on. Rizat was in return what your employees, British, would do for you. And 
there was a thought amongst some, and it wasn't many, that if you got injured, you would go back home. Even if it was a minor wound? Even if it was a minor wound. Particularly if that minor wound was something that prevented you from being an effective soldier. So there was precedent for this throughout the sort of history of the British Indian yeah, Army. Yeah, that's, so that's when they were fighting in India, if you got wounded and you weren't effective as a soldier anymore, you were sent back and you fulfilled your duty and your employer had fulfilled his contract. So, so when they actually found what the conditions were like, far different from anything they experienced, it's not surprising they were frightened to death. Some of them. And there is a story that um, they deliberately injured themselves, usually the left hand. Yeah. Now, you need two hands to fire a rifle. You could, or your trigger finger, that was damaged, made it difficult to use the rifle. And it was clear that some did do that. And they believed that, you know, because they're now injured, they will be sent home. You know, they were not effective as soldiers. Um, and there was a big outcry. There was a lot of rumours. And in my view, it ha certainly happened. How many is a different matter. Um, there was also contrary evidence that it really wasn't very many. Uh, there was a chap, um, Heaton, Seaton, rather, who was at uh, the Kitchener Hospital I mentioned. And he took uh, a thousand cases of injuries to examine to see whether there was evidence of self-inflicted wounds here. And of the thousand, he found six that might be. Cut the long story short, there was certainly some of it. And uh, five Indian soldiers were executed. As a result of it, it sort of put an end to it for a while. And of course, the other thing is uh, desertions. Yes. Did Indian soldiers desert? Well, they had a problem. It's very difficult for them to meld into the background, isn't it? If you think about it, they were a bit different. Yeah, you can't really hide in the local uh, bar in the in the village, can no, you? You, you can't. stand out a bit. You can't. No, and you were a long way away from your family that you might want to get to. And we know there were desertions in the British Army. Um, so I don't think desertion was a very big issue. However, there was one particular uh, example of desertions, uh, quite an interesting one. Um, he was a member of the Vaughan's Rifles. He was called Mir Mast, M-I-R-M-A-S-T. He was the brother of Mir Dast. Mir Dast won the VC. Mir Mast was an Afridi, which meant that his actual nationality was Afghani. He was right. So they're from the border region, are they? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he and about 14 or 15 others deserted to the Germans. Um, and he deserted because the Germans made a big ploy about... Uh, the Turks being attacked by the British in Mesopotamia. And the Turks being Muslim brothers. Exactly. There's a lot yeah. of, of that. Come and join your Muslim brothers. Um, for the majority, it just didn't work. They just 
most of the Indian Muslims on the front just laughed. Uh, and so they gave up. But but Mir Mast thought it was a, a good idea. And he took about 14 or 15 of his friends yeah. with him. It was reported that he was given the Iron Cross, uh, but he wasn't. He was given a lower award. And that was for his efforts to try and get the Emir of Afghanistan to support the Germans to enable an invasion of India. Right. Uh, so that the, the Indian... Are you going to recall the Indian troops back because India is now threatened? And so, so that's the that's the real story of desertion. Um, well, oh, sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say uh, that that is a nice segue, I think, to something I wanted to ask you about. I was going to come to it later, but then there's the great story of Ayub Khan and his his fake desertion. Are you able to briefly tell us about that? Yeah, uh, Ayub Khan. Um, he was also from. Uh, Afghanistan, the Afghanistan region. And one of the customs on the uh, in the Khyber was for uh, an Afridi or a similar nationality to come to the to the British camps and pretend that they wanted to join to to be loyal to the British. Um, and what they would do, they'd come in, they'd chat, chat to the soldiers, a, a lot of whom could speak the native languages, have a look round, see what weapons there were, how many men there were, and then desert, take that information back to their own side. He asked, was it possible for him to do that to his superiors? Uh, and they decided it was far too risky. You know, Ooh. we can't afford to lose somebody like that. And perhaps wondered whether he was actually being loyal or whether he's going to do exactly the opposite and go to the Germans and carry the information that he had. Yeah. Um, so they refused. But he was out on patrol uh, in no man's land and he disappeared. And they assumed, because he was so vehement about supporting the British and had said many times he was either going to die in France or leave as, as an officer, they couldn't believe that he'd actually deserted. And his captain asked Wilcox, who happened to be on inspection, could he go with a patrol? Because he was convinced that he was lying somewhere out in no man's land. And Wilcox quite rightly said, no, you're going to take a patrol, you're going to take you, you're going to put yourself at risk. This bloke might be dead anyway. Or he could have deserted. So no. However, it turned out that he had, in fact, done exactly what he might have done on the Western Front. He'd gone to the Germans. He'd hidden his rifle and his ammunition. He'd sort of come up with his hands up and shouted, Muslim. And the Germans, thinking this was somebody who listened to their propaganda about fighting with the Turks, yeah. took him in, befriended him questioned him, took him up the line to headquarters where he was interviewed. And then he was quite a celebrity because they thought, yes, this is a, our strategy has worked. And that night, he did exactly what they might have done in the Calder Pass. He sneaked out. They must have trusted him because he, he wasn't under guard. Yeah, I'm surprised he wasn't under guard, yeah. But he wasn't, but... Uh, 
he must have put up a really good yeah. case. Escaped from the uh, German line, grabbed his rifle in his ammunition again, and went back slightly at risk because he's now advancing the, the British from line from the wrong side. Yeah. Gets in there and was able to recount when questioned the regiments couldn't read, but he could remember numbers on the shoulders pads of the. Right. He could say, you know, where the Germans were and give some estimation of numbers. Because one of the things we forget is that people, uh, in, in even in Britain, shall we say, in the 18th and 19th century, were very good at memory, memorizing things. Yeah. Even though they couldn't read and write. That's what they did. That's how yeah. they managed. They memorized stuff. And he was decorated for his bravery. Brilliant. What did he get? Do you know? What was he awarded? Uh, Indian Order of Merit, second class. Yeah. Uh, he was then, actually, he was then involved in Kenya as okay. part of the other expeditionary forces. Did, was equally brave and it was converted to first class. Oh, fantastic. So it's a very interesting... Bit of a stud. Story. He was a bit of a stud, wasn't he? he was, yeah, he was. He was. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I think the, the battle most people associate with the Indian Corps in the First World War, it's the place where the big Indian memorial is, which I was lucky enough to visit, uh, is, of course, Neuve Chapelle. Um, yeah. Big battle, I think it was March 1915. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of the, the Corps' involvement in that battle yeah. and, and what their role was? Yeah, of course, you're quite right. It's There was this reorganisation of, of the army beforehand to get ready. And Neuve Chapelle was possibly when the British army first went on the offensive. It had been very much defensive, trying to stop the Germans, pushing them to the sea. And uh, the Meerut and the Lahore Division, Lahore Division is where the Feroz Sail Brigade is, um, their role was to use their artillery to fire at the German front lines. It was going to be a 30-minute uh, bombardment. 30-minute uh, for surprise, but also I'm sure that, that you've heard and, and, and the listeners will have heard of the shell shortage crisis. Yeah. We just were not industrialised back in Britain at the time. We not, weren't making enough shells for artillery. Um, and this is where we're using cannon at a rate that we'd never, ever used them before. So 30 minutes then. Uh, the Garwell Brigade, which was uh, not the one that we we're interested in, they started to advance, supported by the 3rd Battalion of the London Regiment. Um, part of the reorganisation of the uh, brigades was that they were strengthened by reserve regiments from Britain, the Indian right. T TA units essentially. Yeah. yeah, that's because of the casualties. You know the the numbers in each company and each division and so on was being reduced. So Third London Regiment, it really was a good advance, but two of the Indian companies drifted off. Instead of going like that, they went like that. What that meant was that the line that they were supposed to be attacking wasn't being attacked. And they were also bunching up. So there was some confusion. The German line that wasn't being attacked, they had time to reinforce it. And therefore, they could enfilade fire 
at the groups coming up. So that if you can imagine two lines advancing in one direction, but missing out the bit in between, which was populated by more German soldiers who could fire at them. Uh, very high rate of casualties, very high rate, especially amongst the British officers in the, the Indian thing. And therefore, again, the Indian officers were forced to take over, which they did very well. Uh, that gap enabled the, the Germans to reinforce it and then to launch a, a counterattack. And a few from the uh, British regiments, from first Scottish, uh, they were in the Derridan Brigade, um, in the Meerut Division. They were able to form a little resistance group uh, and withdrew, withdrew quite well. French, Field Marshal French, thought this had been a successful attack. Uh, and while fighting stopped at the end of the day, the Germans were able to reinforce their trenches. Just remember, they were out where the British were, the Germans were out outnumbering them very heavily. And then counterattack. And they had to pause the second day because casualty rates were so high. Uh, the Ferrisov Brigade, they'd spent the, the day of the battle in their billets, 10 miles from the front. Uh, that was because that's where Foch, the, the German, uh, sorry, the French Field Marshal, had said they ought to be. Uh, and on the 11th, they were ordered to relieve the Root Division, which had carried out the attack. And they got more close to the front line. Haig thought he was winning. And on the 12th, he ordered Wilcox to push forward the Indian Corps towards the enemy, quotes, no matter what the cost. And I think this is probably an indication of that stage where Haig's starting to realise it's going to be a battle of attrition. And if you kill, this is a, a very simplified bit of simplification, if you kill one German and it costs you two British, that's okay. A real, yep. a real war of attrition. Yeah, uh, the famous quote in in the Anzacs TV show that I used to love as a kid, which is where he says, "So if there's if there's two British and only one German left at the end of the war, then we've won the war." Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. So the whole division was ordered to advance, but the brigade itself, Ferrisol Brigade, was to remain in reserve. Uh, then it was ordered also to advance. So you've now got the whole of the division uh, marching towards Neuve Chapelle. And Edgerton, who commanded the first Soul Brigade, was given command of all the brigades involved, all the German brigades. He was expected to relaunch this attack on the 12th. But when he looked at the state of the troops who had been involved, and also the distance that the ones that hadn't been involved had to travel to get there, um, which would mean that the start time would be delayed, which gave the Germans time to prepare and surprise was lost. 
he believed that this was not going to be an effective attack. He discussed it with uh, Wilcox. Wilcox agreed. And then took um, a brave or foolish step for a, a, an officer. He called it off. Which oh, wow. did not without, without Haig say so. Without Haig say so. Now, I hinted at the beginning that there was a bit of disdain uh, between Haig and, and Wilcox. Uh, Wilcox um, said that um, his men were very precious. You can imagine the Hague was not best pleased. There'd been a lot of casualties and very little gain. I think it was about a thousand yards or something like that for a lot of lives. And he believed that a Wilcox was too friendly in inverted commas with his men. They were part of his big family. And to Wilcox, it seemed as though he was sending his relatives to certain death. And in fact, there'd been discussions between Haig and Wilcox where Wilcox had said previously, before the reorganisation, uh, that, that we're almost dead. We can't fight anymore. Uh, and it didn't, uh, that again didn't endear him to Haig. No. Uh, so the battle run at about a thousand yards. Uh, Indian Corps, 63 British and Indian officers. 42 of those were British. Uh, 772 of the rank killed. Uh, 772 of the ranks killed. Um, nearly 3,000 of the ranks wounded, half of which were Indians. Uh, and Wilcox and Harding were pleased with the gallantry, but lamented the loss. Um, so... Haig uh, wrote a very interesting compliment. He praised them. That this was probably a political thing because Harding was powerful. He praised the bravery and the contribution of the Indians, but pointed out that the job they'd been given was much easier than the job that the British soldiers had been given. Oh, wow. So a bit of a... You can see that Haig is not best pleased with the Indians and beginning to, I think, undervalue their contribution. Uh, they, it was reorganised uh, after that battle and reinforced by other battalions, as I've said, British battalions. Um, and sometime about then, the Lower Division was told to prepare to move. Didn't say where. As far as they were concerned, it could have been just to some other part of the, the battlefield. Um, gaps had to be filled and uh, there, there was also at the second battle of Ypres had a lot of casualties there and that's where they used gas the second battle and the colonial troops French colonial troops um, they, they weren't prepared for this and they broke yeah understandable really oh, oh yeah I'm, I'm, you know this is a brand new weapon of war some might question whether it's ethical. Um, and they would no defence against it. Yeah. And because they retreated in some disarray, the Canadian um, Corps, which was by their side, it was on their right flank, they had to withdraw as well. Because you can imagine that you've got a line of different regiments 
that regiment pulls back, what does this one do? Has yeah. to pull back because there's a big gap for the Germans to come through. Um, but they were able to eventually pull back and, and consolidate with the Fifth Corps. The counterattack involved the Ferrisol Brigade, uh, and more gas was used. Again, they didn't have any real defence. The only defence they had was to uh, get their puggeries, which is the, the the hats, really. Like a turban, yeah. Yeah, pee on them, and yeah. then hold them to your nose, and apparently that had some effect. Mm. Uh, not the most pleasant thing to do, and, and no. not good for morale, I would have thought. Um, but, uh, again, lots of British officers killed. Uh and French redone again. Real the Connaughts and the Baluchis and uh, the 57s managed to form a small group and resist. And they managed to hold the Germans back so the line didn't completely collapse, but they were forced to withdraw. Yeah. In so had to come from India then. Say again, sorry, David, I missed the uh, last bit. That's all right, yeah. But, Again, the need for more reinforce, uh, reinforcements from India. And each time these reinforcements came, they were of inferior quality. But there's only a limited number of people you can recruit in, in the circumstances of India. And there was no call-up. Yeah. So it had to be volunteers. And all those so, letters back home said, we're getting killed, we're getting hurt. They're not, they're not agreeing to, to send us home when we get injured. Would that help help you recruit? Would you want to go and join those? No. So there we are. So they've had they've had this big battle at Neuve Chapelle. They've been involved yeah. at the second battle of Ypres. Yeah. Um, when was the decision made to withdraw them, and why? Well, um, they still still kept on fighting, and they went into uh, Festerberg, of course, and as well. So. When do we withdraw them? There was a lot of talk. Uh, Kitchener uh, had been visiting Wilcox and had told Wilcox that it was his, his intention to keep the Indian Corps on the Western Front. In spite of all the difficulties, Kitchener thought that they were worth keeping there. I suspect this was because the Kitchener battalions that he had set up the recruiting system for weren't quite ready to come. No. And there still wasn't the conscription. July 1915, a new restructuring, uh, massive reorganisation. Um, the newcomers were not as good as the old ones. It was They had all the same problems. They then fought at the Battle of Luz. Uh, first line stalled. Uh, French resigned and Haig took over. I've already said that Haig and Wilcox were not on the best of terms. So we've now got Haig, Commander-in-Chief of the BF. That limitation of the family system that I've talked about really was impacting now because the officers that were, that were coming in didn't know the men at all. The men didn't know themselves either because they were coming from different linked battalions and so on. 
they were not as effective. And on the 31st of October 1915, uh, the whole corps was told it needs to prepare to depart to Marseille, which is an indication that you're leaving France. Ninth Corps took over their front line. I said that the Cavalry Corps were told that they were going to remain because of Haig's disillusionment or Ill illusion that uh, there might be suddenly a big cavalry battle. Anybody who knows anything about the British Army and the early uh, 20th, late 19th century knows there was a big argument about were cavalry mounted infantry or were they people who ran at you with swords and lances? Big debate. But Haig still thought there would be a sword and lance type advance. And of course, he kept, therefore, the Indian cavalry, who had been almost unscathed compared to the infantry. Um, the first Sir brigade boarded trains on the 8th of November and reached Marseille on the 12th of November. They arrived in Egypt on the 22nd of December and they marched to their billets um, near the canal on the 23rd, 24th, 25th. So that was their Christmas. Not that it would matter, but, uh, but there they were. Yeah. Do you they, think they were relieved? Do you get the sense they were relieved to leave or, were, or do you think, think they would have so. liked to have stayed? I, I, I think they were relieved, um, but I also think their feelings were mixed because it must have been quite clear, certainly to the British and probably to the Indian officers, that they were being asked to leave because they were not functioning properly anymore. Was it like being substituted in a big football match, kind yeah. of that sort of feeling? Yeah, 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 yeah. Particularly if you've not performed that well. Yeah. In the eyes of the tra the trainer, the manager, or whoever. Yeah. So I think I think there was that, but there was also relief because they were going to somewhere where the fighting was not as intense. Yeah. Uh, and it was also in a climate they were more used to. And. Um, I think particularly the ones who had not been in France very long and had not got used to the the bloodiness of the fighting there. This was a relief. And it was nearer home. And that's, a, that's one of the important reasons because it was easier to reinforce troops from India if they were in Egypt than if they were in France. Distance was much, much less. Yeah. And also it was a vital role protecting the Suez Canal, which was the main, as we know, it can, you know, we've got troubles now with it, haven't we? And the effects yeah. that can have on on the economy and transport and so on. It was a proper job. Um and they spent their their time there. But they didn't they some of them stayed there, some of them moved on. And you mustn't think, and I'm sure you don't, but no one must think. That was the end of the Indian contribution to the First World War. Uh, there were six, seven uh, Indian expeditionary forces. And we've already talked about the one in Mesopotamia where my great uncle was. But uh, Gallipoli is probably the most well-known contribution uh, that they did. Uh, East was Africa, also, they were there. Well, I was going to say East. There were two IEFs in East Africa. Um, Sinai and Palestine, 
And right, also, yep. there, and also there was a, another raid on the Suez Canal that uh, a particular group was sent. So that's that's really the end of the Indians on the the Western Front, or the Indian infantry on the Western Front. Yeah, cavalry. That that might be the next book if I look at the cavalry and see what what they were saying at the time. Yeah. And, well, David, and, before we before we wrap up, I'd love to know what's your sort of assessment of the Corps on on the Western Front in 1914-15. Do you feel they did a good job and that we should, re, you know, um, you know that their their contribution should be more discussed than it is? Or do you feel that actually they had some problems and things didn't go well or a bit of both? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, as I, as I said, that most of the works in, in modern times, in sort of 60s onwards, have been studies of the Indian Army as a whole. Um, and I think that they miss out by looking deeper than the, this is what I tried to do, actually look at small formations and uh, how they were different. Uh, if you look at the records, particularly in the early stages of British regiments and Indian regiments, Indian war diaries will actually give you the names of casualties or, or recipients of awards and so on. You look at the British Army ones, they tend not to. They might tell you that Captain Smith came back on leave um, and so tended not to mention individuals. I think that's a sign of the family bit that we've stressed a lot. So let, let's have a look at how they've been criticised. And I, I think there were about six criticisms. The first of all was that they were inferior to British troops in the first place. However, like Indian troops in the BF at the start, they were professional soldiers. Most of them had had years of experience, like the BF. They were experts with the weapons they had. Weapons were inferior, but they knew how to use them. Uh, they were very clever at improvisation, as I, I've mentioned, in a way that perhaps the British weren't quite so clever. But their previous experience was very different. They were fighting in hills and valleys and against tribes who very rarely ever came out for pitch battles. Uh, probably there'd been a handful of pitch battles since the mutiny. Second thing was this reliance on British officers that we've talked about. They were to a degree because they were expected to be. But I think when the chips were down, there were enough examples of them being able to command themselves and organise themselves. And as we saw with the first VC winner, when the chips are down, even the private can show initiative and bravery and courage. Uh, they couldn't cope with the European climate. It was assessed. That first winter, uh, 1914, was particularly bad. But as I said, uh, they were sent in summer uniforms. Uh, and the followers were sent with no uniform at all. You know, they were just wearing what they could wear. A lot of them would look like Gandhi, the, the stuff they were wearing. So it's not surprising that it was a bit cold. It was also very wet in spring. Very, very wet. 
bit like England now. So um, it was something they were not used to. However, a lot of them had fought in the Khyber, which was very cold, where the climate was bad. They had the monsoons. So I really don't think it's fair to say that they couldn't stand the climate. And, and I've mentioned the one size fits all. So even when they got uniforms, they weren't necessarily the right ones. Fourth criticism then, they couldn't stand bombardments. They certainly were not used to it. They were, the enemies that they fought, as a rule, didn't have any artillery. So the bombard having to stand there while your trench is shelled was something they never, ever had to experience. Um, I think it also came as a shock to the British. Uh, people who want to compare the British uh, unfavourably with the German, uh, with the Indians will tell you, well, they've experienced this in the Boer War. You know, they did do some trench warfare. They did do some bombardment. But this was on a very small scale. And you've got to remember that was 12 years before. So how many of the, the British troops in the BF had fought the Boer yeah. War and not retired? And a couple of... A couple of long toms is not quite the same as a German bombardment. Oh, absolutely, right? uh, absolutely. So you could, you could say that uh, there was some evidence of that, uh, and possibly some evidence that some of the British soldiers found it equally challenging. Um, I think they were a bit slower to learn not to expose themselves in the same way, to, to keep away from the front, because, uh, as you know, front trenches were very likely manned. It was reserve trenches where the bulk were. And it, I think it took the Indians time to, to realise that was the way to operate. So there might be some business about that. Moral fibre and self-wounding? Yeah, well, there was some self-wounding. Um... There was some desertion, but not on a massive scales. And you could argue that the family nature actually kept people's morale up because they were with people who they regarded as family rather than some strangers. Um, there were desertions on all sides. Um, and as, as you know, there was all the business about lack of moral fibre uh, in, in the British Army and cowardice and and so on um relatively small numbers and i think the same applies probably to the indians and it's also the difference between the the is that my duty or is that your responsibility to me uh, which mm. probably didn't actually exist in the same sort of way in the british army uh, individual divisions were failures um They'd not had the same sorts of experience as the British Army. Uh, the BEF had been fought to a standstill when the, when the Indians came by the Germans. There were some successes and some failures. So I think on the whole, given the parameters under which they were organised, equipped and sent to the Western Front, they were very successful. Had they not been there, 
And I think this is probably the, the, the real crux. Had they not been there, the BF would probably have been pushed right back to the sea. And the First World War might well have been a lot shorter than it was. We've covered a lot of ground today, David, yeah. but obviously there's still a lot more in the book. So if yes. people really want to take a deep dive and, and really get under the skin of the yeah. Ferrers Paul Brigade on the Western Front in World War One, can you just tell them what your book is and how they can get hold of it? And maybe if they want to reach out to you, if you're on any social medias or anything like that. Yeah, um, by all means. Uh, the book was published in February uh, 2023, so it's been out for a bit. It's called... Uh, a tiger loose on an ice floe. And that's a quote from Conan Doyle. And what it tries to describe is you've got a very ferocious animal completely in the wrong environment. So we've got the Indian army, she was fighting in India, suddenly fighting on the Western Front in a, in a way that it's never been used to. Um, by all means, if you want to contact me, I am on email. Uh, and also uh, Facebook, and I'd be very happy to to hear anything from you. And if you want to put your comments in on the uh, this video, then I will take them up and get back in touch with you that way. That's very dangerous, David. <laughs> well, yeah. I wouldn't make that promise. Okay, I won't get back to you then. <laughs> No, mo to be fair, most most commenters on our channel are good people with a lot of good insight. Well, it's all right. There's, there's just the odd crazy person. Well, that, that's all. You probably just interviewed one today. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I do understand that not everybody will agree with what I've said. There are all sorts of reasons. Um, what I can say is that I actually looked at the words of the people who were doing the fighting. And they weren't always in favour of their commanding officers, particularly the senior British officers, who they sometimes thought they were throwing the Indians uh, into, into the fire, basically. Um, not a lot, but it's there. Of course, you have to be very careful what you write in an official document. Yeah. So, no. Anyway, well. Well, David, thank you so much. That was wonderful. I've learned a lot. I've read your book and I thought it was brilliant. So I highly <laughs> recommend it for anyone watching and those listening on the podcast. Get yourselves a copy of Tiger Loose on a Nice Flow from Helion Books. Well, there we go, guys. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. David's actually becoming a genuine friend. I've really grown to know him and like him, and I hope he'll be on the show again in the future. Do drop me an email, redcoathistory at gmail.com. If you think of any other people I should be interviewing or if you yourself are an author and want to talk about any new or upcoming books or subjects that interest you. All right, guys, I'll be back with a new episode next week. Take care. All the best.